This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. Well, it's another week, Jan, and another collection of authors. And more reading, more chatting, and... And more isolation. (laughs) We're still doing it at a distance. We are. And sometimes our ability is compromised to an extent by our recording facility, but let's give it a go. I'm sure listeners know of and may have even visited Wonthaggy. You'll learn a bit more about it this morning because Wonthaggy is one of the places in Christine Bell's book, No Small Shame. Welcome, Christine. Look, I've been to Wonthaggy and visited the historical coal mine. It stopped working in the 1960s, but you still got that feel of how dark and damp it was. And I was very surprised where it got its initial workers from. And that introduces us to your book and the O'Donnell family. Who were they? Well, they're entirely fictional family, but I did base their journey from Scotland to the Wanthaggy State Coal Mine on my great-grandparents who came out in 1912 and 1913. That they actually brought in coal workers from so far away? Well, there were a lot of people who migrated across from the goldfields to Wanthaggy. There were very few assisted passages in those days and you usually had to be a domestic or a farmer to get a supported passage from the government. But for some reason, the coal miners did and there were whole families came from Scotland at the time, but there were a lot of Welsh, Scots and Irish Mm. miners in Wanthaggy as well. And so the O'Donnell and their neighbours, the Merrillis, the men went out first, the fathers and um, Liam, and then the women followed. Mary O'Donnell and Liam Merrillis had been best mates forever. They'd made a blood promise. What was their, Mary and Liam, what was their blood promise about? It was that they would be better than their lot and in effect better than their parents and not go down the mine because Liam didn't want to. He wanted to stay on at school. Probably had Mary not befriended him at that point, they would never have become such good friends, but they were next door neighbours. She'd always had a crush on him mm. and he he couldn't talk to his friends because they were all pretty happy to go down the mine. That yeah. was the life they expected to lead. And when... Um, they finally got together. As you say, Mary had always had a a bit of a romantic feeling towards Liam. When she finally got to um, Wonthaggy, he he really wasn't very, he didn't pay much attention to Mary. They didn't have that easy friendship that they had before. You know, how did that make her feel? Well, quite abandoned because she had believed that she was coming out and they would not only just be as good friends as ever, they would go on to more than friendship. But when she came out to Australia, Liam had been here for six months and he was back down the mine and very unhappy about it and bitter. And, of course, she thought, well, you know, you've just come to this country surely you can put up with it for a, a while. Nobody's getting jobs down in the city. But, of course, he was not happy with that at all. But there was a happy day at the fair in Wonthaggy when Liam had a bit to drink and relaxed in her company. 
uh, which led to, mm, should we say? Well, ultimately it did lead <laughs> to them getting together, yes. Now, we haven't mentioned uh, the Catholicism that was so strong in this book. So, you know, in Catholicism at this stage, what was worse, having a child out of wedlock or marrying a Protestant? <laughs> Oh, they were both pretty high up there, though I think marrying a Protestant would have been considered at that stage a mortal sin. Sex out of marriage was too, so <laughs> I think they were pretty on a par. <laughs> well, we're going to jump to Mary now living and working in Richmond, and I love the description of the streets and just how people were living there at the time. And she was living with the lovely Pearl, who was actually a bit more maternal than her own mother. Mary was in her element. Here she had a bedroom and it features on the front cover of the book, all this floral and she just loved it. But she did have a worry because Pearl had another nephew. Can we hear from page 188, please, Christine Bell? Only one other of Pearl's relatives lived in Melbourne, a regular guest for Sunday tea, she said, Nate's older cousin, Tom Robbins. Doesn't your other nephew want the room then, Mary asked, before chomping her teeth on her tongue for mentioning the idea. No, it's been offered to him often enough. Tom works odd hours at a hotel, Pearl rolled her eyes. He paints and writes stories too, children's stories, but he's not in print yet. So he paces the streets in the middle of the night with no regard to his bad chest, dreaming up his ideas and insisting a drafty flat the better place for him to be. Besides, Pearl dropped her voice to a whisper, Tom's from our unmentionable side of the family. Protestants, God forgive us. God forgive us. But um, Tom had his other demons too. This was at the time of the outbreak of World War One. What was Tom's problem? Well, Tom was desperate to go to war mm. and be part of it and do his bit, but he had, uh, he had asthma and ba a bad chest. So when he was well... He was as fit as the next man, but when he was sick, he was chronically ill. And so he was in an exemption from going to war, which he did not want. So he was very bitter that he was not allowed to go and do his, his bit for his country. Oh, and there was that ter terrible time when they're out walking together and Tom was attacked by those two women verbally about being a shirker. He, he actually was even given the shirker poem. Which I think that... You know, men were accosted all over Australia with a similar poem. Of course, there was the anti-German sentiment at the time and uh, where Mary had finally found some work in a factory in Richmond, it was poor Lizzie who got sacked. Lizzie, who was born in Richmond. Mary, she was an immigrant, but Lizzie, born in Richmond, but she lost her job. Why did Lizzie lose her job? Well, due to one of the other girls carrying on that she was German and that she shouldn't be working there and that they couldn't be trusted. And the employer ended up um, giving her the sack. But it was coming to the time where Germans weren't allowed to work in a lot of places and there were internment camps. But I think you know, a lot of people did turn a blind eye to the fact that mm -hmm. somebody's heritage because they'd been there for a very long time. An engine driver who used to drive the lift down in the mine and he'd been working there for four years until the men actually, they went on strike to uh, protest about him driving mm -hmm. them up and down and yet he'd been in Australia mm -hmm. for 38 years. 
There were those that were put out of work and there was also the men returning from the war who had learned that it wasn't the adventure they thought it would be. And some of the returned soldiers were able to get pensions because they were physically disabled. But what about the mental, the, the soldiers returning with mental problems? They were really up against it as far as the, the government pension scheme went because firstly they had to prove that their mental incapacity was directly related, related to the war because a lot of the time uh, the repatriation people wanted to say that this was an hereditary thing, that it was a pre-existing complaint mm -hmm. and not directly related to war. It was so hard to prove. And if you couldn't prove it, you were just considered that you were mental, which was a huge oh, shame so and slur on anyone. So it was very often hidden more than treated until um, wives and mothers and sisters couldn't cope with their injured soldier or their mental soldier, as they called them at the time. Um, Mary's mother. Her strict Catholicism oh, and, you know, her whole idea about marriage, you know, sort of the vows in sickness and in health and obey. So, you know, one of the shames perhaps in uh, this book, No Small Shame, is that Mary wasn't as devout as with her religion as her mother was, which caused problems well, I think most teenagers rebel to a certain extent and question religion, but Moore was able to use hers very puritanically to make Mary do what she wanted her to do. And I have no doubt that Moore did care, but she was, she was quite tyrannical in the way mm. she read things. And as the book is resolved, you, you find out why Moore was so narrow-minded well many people were they they didn't step outside the boundaries of what the church said you could and couldn't do there's one <laughs> character one one incident that is going to stay with me for a long time there wasn't much choice mary made a bad choice but it was her friend winnie pete who also chose now who did she choose as a marriage partner she chose a man called Frank Sloy, which was, Frank was 17 years a senior and, to be quite honest, he's a pig of a man who oh. uh, had very few redeeming qualities. Winnie, at 20 even, was scared of being left on the shelf. She, Frank Sloy asked her and she married him because she didn't think she was going to get a better offer. And... and Oh, Mary went to visit. I was fearful that she would never, never get out alive. Oh, that was, that was scary. The vocabulary of the time, Christine Bell, I thought you just snapped this in. Just a few examples. Would you care to promenade with me? <laughs> or stupid galoot. And, of course, we can't have these people swearing, so even Mary comes out with... Jings and golly, you're an idiot. But I think my favourite of all time is, have you gone gilhooky mad? <laughs> are, these, are these words that were part of your upbringing or did you, how did you find these terms? A lot of them I did look up and, but it was interesting to me how many things that seemed to 
you know, come out on the page. And I wondered where I got them from, but my great grandmother was Irish and my grandmother was Scott born in Scotland. She was 10 when she came out to Australia. So a lot of those old sayings tend to keep going, but yes, there was some research into the language as well to get that right. Well, the story itself about around Mary's life isn't all that big and complicated because, you know, she, we only have about 10 years of her life, but it was the time that uh, this life was, was in, that time around the World War I with strong religious sentiment and overriding anybody's desire for personal happiness and the community judgment that was just so strong and the little understanding of mental health problems all of these things, and you've written about how they impinge on Mary's life. And I thought for such a small life, you've got so much in this book. I thought it was just so. Now, I'm going to get Christine to read another bit from her book, and this is a bit from page 306, because who can believe these words were probably written a couple of years ago and went through a draft or two, and here they are. Joe and Dar arrived to their shift one morning in March to a sign posted at the union office, standing down the men for a week and warning them to avoid congregating in crowds. Across the country, people were warned to stay home, fumigate, disinfect and steer clear of even talking to others in the street. Theatres, schools, sporting clubs and major events across the country were closed or cancelled. <laughs> How do you feel about writing that this very March going into April where everything's cancelled? It has a very eerie resonance and it's very timely. Had I realised that this was going to happen, I possibly would have explored it even more. But of course, that wasn't what No Small Shame is about. Sometimes truth is stranger than fiction. <laughs> uh, Christine Bell. Your book, No Small Shame, it's uh, Impact Press, which is an imprint of Ventura. Thank you so much for coming and being on Published or Not in these interesting times. Thank you very much for having me. And now it's time for David. Do couples have the right to deceive their partners? Suzanne Leal's latest novel, The Deceptions, looks at some intriguing ethical questions when it comes to relationships. So, Suzanne, welcome to 3CR. Oh, David, it's really excellent to be here. Thank you so much for having me. I'd like to start at the very end of the novel, without giving anything away, of course. If anyone can show why these two may not be lawfully wed, it's a very traditional literature trope. Yes, there is the wedding ceremony, and the touchstone of a climax or of a book comes with the moment where it can all go pear-shaped or when someone can stand up and say, this is not a marriage that can work. And in the book, there are several people who would be able to stand up and say, this might not be a marriage that could go ahead. And what I wanted to play with was everybody's decision as to would they speak? Or would they not? And I suppose also sure. to keep the reader engaged and thinking, well, what would I do? To begin with, the United Church minister conducting this wedding, Ruth, actually is one of those parties who could, in fact, say something to stop the wedding. Yes, and she's had to wrestle with that prior to getting dressed up 
and coming to the church and presiding over the ceremony. And I think by putting a minister into the pot of this book, moral issues really come to the fore. And what happens when you have to decide between one or other exception? When you're a single person like Ruth Martin, where do you go to wrestle those theological and moral dilemmas? But that also creeps into her private life as well. As you say, she's single. She wants a relationship. But her very role as a minister of religion compromises her in a way. She's single. She meets Eric Cochran. And at one of their first meetings, Ruth had hesitated, once again struggling with her options, the truth, a hard truth, or simply a lie. Her vocation, she had learned, was unlikely to promote conversation. In the past, it had even sent people running. A lie, she decided. A social worker, she said to him. So she's not, in fact, being honest and truthful. No, and I think it's a really tough gig. But what happens if you're a woman and you're single, you want to marry, you'd like to have children... How do you go, particularly now, how do you, how do you go about dating in that world? The yeah. approaches the other person takes could be that, it, um, well, Eric didn't want to get married. He wanted a sort of casual relationship. Could Ruth, in fact, support that sort of notion given her occupation, which creates an interesting dilemma. But here's the thing. The way that Ruth is presiding over is that of Tessa and John. But now Tessa has been involved in an affair with a married man. Does this compromise the nuptials? But I'm interested in what agency Tessa had in her relationship with uh, Mr Hawken. So Tessa is early 30s and her boss, Evan Hawken, is maybe 10, 12 years older than her. And he's very charming. He's a partner in the firm where she works and he's very persuasive, and she becomes entangled in a relationship with him. He's also married and has two children. I've always been interested in the dynamic of the woman who becomes involved with a married man. What is her responsibility? Is there a sisterhood where any woman who comes single has a responsibility to the wife, or is she duped, or is there something about the relationship the single woman doesn't know? Or does she come as she is, a single woman, and any responsibility for the morality of the relationship lies with the person who is not single? You could look at it in a traditional sense that Mr Hawkins, because we first get introduced to him as Mr Hawkins, and then we Mm. find out his name, Evan. I mean, he's taking advantage of a subordinate. That would be one interpretation. But then at the same time, Tessa has the opportunity to leave, but doesn't. Those are two distinct questions, I think. And I I do think there is this question of a power imbalance. It's also a power imbalance that I explore in another avenue of the story, which is war-based. But that's the question. What happens when a younger subordinate attracts the attention of her employer? Can she really get away, even if she wants to? And I think the second question is that What happens when you're so enmeshed in a relationship that emotionally you feel you can't go? And what is it that will enable you to go 
Do you need to have a really strong temperament? Do you need to have physical distance? Does somebody else need to come into the picture? I think it's difficult when it's a secret affair as well because often, and certainly for Tessa, there are very few people she can talk to about it or indeed whether she wants to. And you don't actually make judgments, which is interesting. You let it play out. But this brings us then to the pivotal relationship within the novel, which you've already alluded to, which actually occurred during World War II and the Holocaust. Now, the first person I want to tackle here is Carol Kruter, a gendarme of the Provincial Detachment of Bohemia. But he's involved in supervising those interred at Theresienstadt. Now, he has an affair with Hannah, a Jewish internee. It's opportunistic, but you're not necessarily critical of his conduct. You have in the novel, in his daydreams and in his night dreams, she had already been there, but to actually have her in front of him made him feel lightheaded. I mean, this is almost a boyish infatuation that Carol has. You're exactly right. The power imbalance uh, between two people is something I'm particularly interested in. And as a writer, what I like is that I don't have to be in judgment over my characters. I can just watch them play. I've always been very clear that that's not my job. My job isn't to judge. My job isn't to create a moral tale. It's to throw the characters on a table and say to the reader, okay, what do you think? This brings us to Hannah herself. Now, Carol's taking advantage of Hannah, but Hannah's reason for the relationship is simply pure survival. Theresienstadt was a ghetto outside Prague during the war. It was like a holding camp before people were transported off to the concentration camps, most notably Auschwitz. It was well organised and it was well organised mostly by the Jewish Council of Elders who looked to the day-to-day affairs while the guarding of the camp was left to the Czech gendarmes and also uh, the SS soldiers. It was a population of essentially really educated, very creative people and it was a really unexpectedly abundant place. And so my character, Hannah, comes from that milieu She's educated, she plays the piano, she sings, she's confident, she speaks a couple of languages. And she is working, forced to work as a farmer, uh, not as a farmer, as a gardener, living in the ghetto. And she's guarded by Carl, who is none of these things. He's bright, and he, I think there's a certain charm to him, but he came from a rural upbringing. He's not Jewish, um, he doesn't have a history of strong creativity, particularly in the arts. And so whilst he's in charge of Hannah, in a way she is the one who is the one who's more beguiling because she brings to him a slither of a world that he doesn't know. So yes, there's an imbalance and yes he's doing the wrong thing. He's married, he's in, he's um, her guard and even under the Nazi laws it's illegal. So it's illegal to have any interaction, any physical interaction as a non-Jew with a Jewish person. But I don't think things are always as simple as one person being in charge and the other person not. But I've always been interested not in the black and the white cases, I've always been interested in the grey. Not for a moment do I say it's anything but a opportunistic relationship 
in which he has the physical and the um, actual power, but she's the one with the intellectual and cultural background that is so beguiling to him and even makes him in her thrall rather than having complete control. She also needs or takes advantage of the situation because it, it, it means extra food and, and survival. But they are found out, sent to Auschwitz. But then there's the forced march that, towards the end of the war, at which stage Hannah is pregnant. And what's interesting then is the meaning behind or the significance of that pregnancy because it represents life, but to so many other people around her. That pregnancy is a sign of hope. The interesting thing for pregnancy during that time was that it was almost always a death sentence. So if a detainee or an inmate was found to be pregnant uh, in Auschwitz or in some of the other concentration camps, that would mean a death sentence. And yet she is able to hide the pregnancy in this time where her life has no value to the people who are guarding her. Somehow, miraculously, she's managed to carry this kicking child at a time where people are dying around her. But it gives hope to those around her, like her friend Eliska. You know, that prospect of a child kept them both alive in that regard, that sign of hope. I think that's the wider theme of my book. I think if if my book is about anything, it's about hope and resilience in difficult times. I wasn't interested in writing so much about the horrors of the Holocaust. I think other people have done that very well and very comprehensively. But I do, in my writing, like to look for that kernel of optimism, that kernel of hope or resilience, no matter how difficult the times. And I think, as you said, once you've picked up, the pregnancy is that. This brings us then to Robert. I mean, Hannah, after the war, becomes a housekeeper for Robert in England, marries him, and it sort of points the whole series of relationships that we see point to the fact that we don't always control the situations and circumstances in which our relationships uh, find themselves. I think that's right. Robert said when the, when the book opens, and he has a very small but important role in the book, and Hannah finds marriage unexpectedly with Robert, and there is a relationship of great kindness, and I was interested in looking into the idea of a cocoon, where a marriage can be a cocoon, where a person can become someone different when they've come from difficult times. For me... circumstances which determine the nature of the relationships. Now, these seemingly disparate individuals miraculously all connected, which brings us back then to the wedding we see at the end of the novel. And, of course, we can't give it away, but there are ethical problems given that we've looked into the nature of these relationships, the reasons, the various reasons, why people choose to reveal or hide 
their experiences and circumstances and the truth. Listeners will have to read this for themselves. We're not going to give it away. That's part of the delight of reading. The novel is actually called The Deceptions. The author is Susan Leal. And it's an Alan and Unwin release. Well, Jan, that takes us out for another week. And look, more books to read for next week, more authors to chat with. Despite the travails of uh, coronavirus and such like, we will do our best to keep bringing you more authors next week. See you then. Well, let's Bye. talk then. <laughs> You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.